Again, that's John chapter 4, verses 39 through 42. Verse 39. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with him. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we have heard our, ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. If you'll just be sure and keep your Bible open at John 4, you'll be at the right place. During the time that Jesus lived upon this earth, the center part of Palestine was known as uh, Samaria. Politically, to, to the north of Samaria was Galilee. To the south of Samaria was Judea. All of those were on the west side of the Jordan River. The, the people who inhabited Samaria were, for the most part, a mixed race of people. They were part Jew and part Gentile. And here is how that came about. More than 700 years prior to the birth of Jesus, the army of Assyria had conquered the ten northern tribes known as Israel. And in the conquering, thousands of Jews were carried away into captivity and then were dispersed throughout the Assyrian Empire. Since the Assyrians understood that it was not wise to leave a conquered land sparsely settled, they resettled non-Jews in Samaria. And so Jews were removed, non-Jews were brought in. And these Gentiles, which they were, mixed with the Jews over a period of time and eventually intermarried with them. It also happened, as you would expect, that if they were Gentiles and married Jews, and not during a real strong time anyway, that part of the elements of Gentile pagan religion would be mixed with practices that God had ordained for his people. Now, Jews of the southern tribes, known as Judah and Benjamin, did not really learn from the mistakes of their northern kinsmen. And slightly more than a hundred years after the fall of the north, the south also fell. Babylonians came in three separate waves to take Jews away from Judea. And when they were allowed to return after an appropriate time in God's thinking, 70 years, those Jews who returned home began to rebuild the temple which had been originally constructed by Solomon. There were in that area Samaritans, and, and because they weren't all in Samaria, but there were Samaritans, and, and they offered to help in the rebuilding of the temple. Do you remember perhaps that story? The Jews refused their offer. And when they were refused, 
the opportunity to help, they began to try to hinder the project. And as time went on, bad relations got worse. And so by the time that Jesus came to the earth, there was a great deal of animosity and even contempt between Jews and Gentile, between Jews and Samaritans. It was particularly a matter that the Jews had contempt for the Samaritans. I'm sure some of that was reciprocal, but for the most part, it was Jews holding Samaritans in contempt. You might recall the occasion when Jesus was passing through Samaria on his way to Jerusalem. And on that trip, he received a cool welcome. And and two of his disciples asked the Lord if he wanted them to call down fire from heaven to destroy these Samaritans. You might think initially, well, They were just upset because of the way they treated Jesus. That's possible. But it also may have reflected their normal contempt for the Samaritans. How dare these Samaritans not respond correctly to Jesus? As you remember, if you recall Luke 9, and if you want to turn there for just a moment, Luke 9, Jesus did not share their attitude. Luke 9, verse 55 begins, But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And then it notes, And they went to another village. We also know that Jesus didn't share that attitude or feeling of contempt, because in Luke 17, he healed 10 lepers. And verse 16 of that chapter says at least one of of one of them, and he was a Samaritan. Incidentally, the one who returned to thank Jesus for what he had done. You get the idea that the others were Jews and they didn't thank him. There is one occasion, however, in dealing with the Samaritans that seemingly stands out more than any of the others. It's told here in John 4. The setting is this. Jesus had been to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. And he decided that he would travel temporarily from Judea back up to Galilee, where he did much of his work. Most of the Jews of his day would have come up with this travel plan. We're going to skirt the entire region of Samaria. And the way that they would do that normally would be they would cross the Jordan River to the east. They would travel north past the boundary of Samaria and cross back over the Jordan into Galilee. They almost considered that a badge of honor, not to walk through Samaria. Instead, Jesus chose to go directly through Samaria. And why did he do that? Well, it might interest us to see in John 4, verse 4, the simple statement John records of Jesus, but he needed to go through Samaria. It wasn't the fact that he really needed to do it because that was the shortest distance. He needed to do it. 
And, and I'm convinced that the Lord knew what was going to happen and wanted his disciples to see what would happen. Now, Jesus arrived outside of a small village called Sychar about noontime. And our Lord, living in a human body, was weary. He was tired. And he was left alone there outside of that little village while his disciples went into the city to buy food. Inspiration allows us to see three scenes that take place at this little spot. We can almost view them as if they were scenes in a play. Here's scene one, Jesus and a woman. It's interesting that we're not even told her name. We're just told she was a Samaritan woman. We know she was. And, and we know also that she wasn't expecting to hear what she heard that day. The Lord taught her at least two very important lessons that day. If you look with me, beginning at verse 7, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Verse 6 is said that Jesus was by a place known as Jacob's Well, a very ancient spot. This woman came out, evidently, to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And then John makes this comment, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. He wouldn't even talk to them. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. You're not surprised, given what John tells us, that the woman was puzzled that a Jewish man would even bother to speak to her. And, and note John's comment there again in verse 9, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This, this is not the norm. She knows that. She's probably been rebuffed before by Jewish men who turned away from her and wouldn't even speak. Maybe they would have said, get out of the way. But Jesus is different, and he claims to, to give her living water. What, what he offered her was much better than what he asked of her. He asked for a physical drink. He's offering her water that is not human water. 
And he says, in, and, and it is said in verse 14, Jesus said, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, notice, springing up into everlasting life. The Lord is able to completely satisfy. And, and he says, you'll never thirst. Other statements of Jesus, John 8, 51, Jesus says, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Or John eleven twenty six, Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. What wonderful reassurance Jesus gives us of his ability to give us what we need. Now the other lesson that Jesus taught her besides living water had to do with true worship. In verses 16 through 24, he said, Go call your husband and come here. The woman said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. We're not going to really focus on that, except to say that Jesus knew her condition she would be amazed that he would know that. But she, Jesus knew her condition. And, and because he, he understood that, she needed, in her mind, to divert his attention from her failures. And so she would raise a question to, to get him away from her problems. So in verse 19, she says, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place to wor where one ought to worship. And so she, she would have Jesus to explain to her something that would obviously not be what he had normally uh, asked her to, to, to think about. Jesus told her more than what she questioned, gave her a better answer than what she really asked. And, and what he would say to her was that worship, true worship, would not only be confined no longer to a single location, in fact it never was, but it would need to be worship that would combine two very essential elements. And so in verse 23 and 24 he would say the hour is coming and now is. This is the time. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Two elements. Our spirits reach out to God's spirit. <clears throat> the King James Version was, was a wonderful version that provided help for people for a long, long time. But the King James Version in saying God is a spirit missed the idea. He is not just a spirit. He is spirit. He is a spiritual being. How do you connect with the spiritual being? Through your spirit. That's how you connect. And, and when we fail to do that, worship simply is reduced to ritual. If our spirit doesn't connect with God's spirit, we're simply going through a ritual. But there's something else, and that is by omitting the truth, that is God's revealed way to worship, we have made worship vain. 
Remember Jesus saying, In vain do they worship me, teaching as their doctrines the commandments of men. Worship becomes meaningless if it's not based in truth. And the truth of the matter is, it offends God rather than honors Him. So there is a great obligation when, incidentally, when you and I worship, to let our spirits reach out to God's Spirit. And there is an obligation that we worship as God has ordained that we worship. Not something that pleases us. Not something that we decide. But rather what he decides. Jesus would add something else. And that is, he would declare to her who he was. She'd said, you know, I, you're a prophet. You must be a prophet. But Jesus says to her in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. That's based on what she had said in verse 25. I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he will come, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said, that's me. She needed to understand that the man whom she spoke to at that well was not just a man. He was the Messiah, the one who had been promised by God. To come save his people. There's a lot more that could be said about that situation. But perhaps we could just add one thought. And that is we need to be careful of being unconcerned about people. M many of the Jews would have been absolutely unconcerned about this woman. She would have been at best just somebody to be in the way. But Jesus did not feel that way nor should we. Every person is a soul, and every person will spend eternity somewhere. And we want them to be in heaven, not in hell. And so we need to show our concern. Now, as dramatic as that scene was, there's another that would follow it. And that's scene two, Jesus and his apostles. We see in verses 27 and 28, and at this point, time, point of time, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman, yet no one said, what, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? They, they were puzzled about it, but they didn't want to ask. But verse 28 says, the woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men and so on. Now, obviously they were amazed. <clears throat> I don't want to read too much into this, and so forgive me if you think I am, but maybe you would feel the same way. I think they're amazed because they wouldn't have done what Jesus did. They're amazed that he talked to them. Now, you see, if they had felt that same way, they wouldn't have been amazed. Why, well, Jesus is talking to this woman, and we understand that because we would have talked to her also. I don't think they would have. And especially a woman who is a Samaritan, in verse 31, these disciples urged Jesus to eat. Rabbi, eat. You're, we know you're hungry. Eat. And his reply really puzzled them because he says in verse 32, I have food to eat of which you do not know of. You do not know. Again, that puzzles them because the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? He's talking about having food, but how did he get any food? And then Jesus explains this to them. We hope they got it. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. 
I think it's marvelous that, and it shows why he is our Savior, that what sustained Jesus was not just the physical things of life. Yes, he needed food as any human would need it. But Jesus said, the thing that really keeps me going, my real food, is the Father's will. That's what keeps me going. And Jesus needed to teach them also to have the right kind of attitude. And so he, he then turns to say this to them. Do, not, do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who gathers receives wages. He who gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. I could say a lot about that except just to note this. Opportunities are available. Jesus said the fields are white to harvest. It's, it's harvest time. And, and if we look for those opportunities like the Lord wished his disciples would look for them, we would see them. And the harvest, according to Jesus, is really what's most important. Not, not who reaps and who sows. That's not important. What's important is that there is reaping and sowing and the harvest comes. Remember, Paul's attitude about this is exactly right. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 and 7, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. And then note, so then neither he who plants is anything, that's himself, nor he who waters, that's Apollos, but God who gives the increase. That's what's really important. Whether you're a sower, whether you're a reaper, not that important. It's God who is important because he gives the harvest. And then, Jesus, and then John shows us one more scene here before Jesus would leave the area. And that scene is Jesus and the town people. We see this in verses 39. You heard Doug read it a few moments ago. Let me read it again, please. Many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. We saw in verses thirty. A little earlier in the, this account that the woman in verse 28 left her water pot. Water pot would be very important because that's why she came. But, but I think you can guess that it was due to her excitement over what she had heard and she couldn't wait to tell others what she had heard. I, I wish we had that same zeal. I, I fear sometimes we don't. She was so excited. She needed to tell somebody what she had learned, we need to sense that excitement ourselves. So she goes into town. She begins to tell others about Jesus. And she must have been convincing enough. Now, this, 
this woman is not the paragon of society, I don't think. She's lived with five men, and I, I don't know what else was wrong with her, but she is so energetic and excited about this that people are convinced that there's something special here. And they want to see and hear for themselves. Verse 39 tells us about the impact she had on them. Many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman. They were convinced that she's not lying. She's not making this up. This is really something. But then you get to verse 41 and you're encouraged. And they said, now we need to tell you, we don't believe because of what you said. We believe because we have seen and heard him and we know for ourselves this is indeed the Christ. We're convinced. Not just a prophet, not just a great teacher, the savior of the world. I think what that says to us in part is that we should never minimize the value of speaking to others about Jesus. I, I, I think it's likely that all of us have gone through some discouragement. We, we try to talk to people about Jesus and maybe they don't seem interested. They don't respond quickly. They don't do what we'd like for them to do. Our task is not to make the harvest come. The task is to sow and then let God give the increase. This unlikely woman got things started and faith grew because of it. As Jesus had told the apostles, one sows and another reaps. But the truth is there's no reaping without sowing. Sometimes people say, I don't understand why the church is not growing. I can tell you why it's not growing. It's all of us. That's why it's not growing. We're not doing enough sowing. We're not in engaging enough people. And you can believe if you want that there's nobody out there that wants to hear the truth. But I don't know that you can prove that. How many have we tried to teach the truth? That's what we do know. And so there are three scenes. I think we didn't touch on everything we could have looked at in those scenes. But it's a, it's a beautiful picture of the concern of Jesus. And our Lord offered to this woman living water. You know what? He still offers it. Still offers it today. Th that you can drink of Him metaphorically. And you will have life everlasting. Do you have that now? If you need to come to become a Christian, we want to help you do that. There are some things you must do, of course. You must put your faith in Jesus as the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And what that really entails is that you really believe that the sacrifice that He made, the blood that He shed can cleanse you of your sins. If you don't believe that, there's no purpose in coming. But if you believe that, and because you know He died for you, and you haven't responded to Him, that's the time to turn away from your sins. We call it repentance. And then would you have the willingness, the courage to stand before others and confess that faith? If you really believe He is the Son of God, you'd have no trouble doing that. And then to allow yourself to be baptized, immersed, so that your sins can be washed away.
If you need to come to Christ, do it, please, while we stand and sing.